Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Matt, nice to meet you, man. Thank you so much for joining us on Changing the Climate. Great. Thanks for inviting me on. Looking forward to the conversation. As am I. Should be a good one. My pleasure every single week. And of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are, how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Matt Fromer. I work for an organization. It's a nonprofit called the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project or SWEEP. Uh, We are based in Boulder and Denver. We work in five states in the Southwest. That's Colorado, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona. Um, And we work on energy efficiency and clean transportation policy. So at the state level, local level, we do a lot of work with electric utilities and the Public Utilities Commission um, with transit agencies trying to electrify buses and get more bus service, transit service out there. And generally just try to um, improve transportation system efficiency and reduce pollution. Very cool. Let's go into the origin story. How'd you get involved with the company? <laughs> Why are you interested in that stuff? Where are you from? All that kind of fun stuff. Sure. Yeah. So from the East Coast, I actually studied architecture undergrad, um, went to Michigan, and then I was building uh, university buildings, basically. Um, did a stint overseas, actually, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates, uh, because I graduated into the recession and there were no jobs in the U.S., So I took a job overseas, basically building skyscrapers, Um, then moved back, was living in Manhattan for a while, building sort of residential towers, luxury buildings, um, which was really fun. I got to know, learn a lot about the city, about zoning and land use. Um, I wasn't fully satisfied in that role, I would say, uh, partially because I was building um, apartments basically for very wealthy people. That's kind of what the market incentivizes. Um, and I'd finish these buildings and then go walk by at night and kind of none of the lights were on. Um, I kind of noticed that people were buying these properties to park their money and weren't necessarily living there. And I was also at the same time noticing we were sort of entering this a bit of a housing crisis. Um, and so I, I started thinking more about policy and zoning and about like, yeah, who decides what we build and where and how housing and transportation and climate and all these things are interrelated um, and ended up actually transitioning uh, more into policy and planning. Um, it actually took me out of New York, out to Colorado, um, where I went to grad school, CU Boulder, uh, studied sustainable planning and management. And it was in grad school that I got into transportation, um, was sort of fascinated by like this future of transportation where we've got sort of a convergence of electric vehicles, potentially autonomous vehicles, and we call shared mobility, like this sort of Uber, Lyft. Um, Now we got the rise of Amazon Prime and these on-demand delivery services and what that could mean for transportation system, for for, um, climate. Um, And so that brought me to to work at Sweep. And uh, yeah, I've been there now for uh, going on four years. Um, and it's been really exciting uh, to work in the space. Got a lot of great partners in Colorado and the, the coalition grows every day. And um, we've been able to get quite a bit done uh, with uh, the Polish administration. So it's exciting. Very cool stuff, man. You say potentially autonomous. Don't you think it's an inevitability, man, with what Tesla's doing and stuff? I mean, I don't know where you stand. It seems like the older generation, like they like having their like hand on the wheel and controlling things. Me, I'm ready to hop into the back of a car and go to sleep and then just drive somewhere. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like ready for yeah. the full autonomy. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd say when I was studying this in 2016 in grad school, we were convinced that autonomous vehicles were coming in 2017. And we were like scrambling to get the policy pieces in place. Of course, now it's five years later and we don't have autonomous vehicles on the road, save for a few pilots in like Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I think it's much more complicated than we thought, especially in urban environments. And I think also when we took a closer look um, at Uber and Lyft, 
um, which basically are sort of paving the way toward autonomous vehicles, I would say, sort of the combination of autonomous and rideshare, which could potentially replace personal vehicle ownership and bring some benefits to society. But there's also sort of this like dystopian scenario where we have like robot, robot cars driving all over the place, half of them are empty and you're stuck in traffic because people would rather send their autonomous vehicle to circle the block instead of pay seven bucks an hour to park it. Um, so I think, I think there's some, some policy pieces we need to think through there with autonomous vehicles and whether they're actually bring, like delivering on those benefits in terms of pollution, in terms of like transportation access, um, air quality benefits, um, equity is a big one, who gets to access the autonomous vehicles and as well as who owns them, who operates them and those sorts of things. So I, I think we'll work out the kinks, but I mean, like I said, it, it's not coming on as quickly as we might've thought five years ago, um, at least in our, in our cities. Yeah. I'm trying to piece together what you said about like building giant buildings for like rich people, how you went from like studying something <laughs> where you were like creating stuff to more like policy. And I guess I'm, I'm sensing like the ability for you to like impact the every man rather than like if you know what's compensated the best would be creating those luxury buildings. But when you work in policy, you can actually help the little guy with what you're doing. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out where you went from like creation to like legislation in your head. Yes. Um, I kind of skipped over one piece there, which is I, one of my experiences was I was, uh, I'd moved from New York city out to Vail, Colorado, essentially to like ski for a season. And I was working for an architect in Vail kind of part-time. Um, and the projects we were doing were like very, very nice ski homes, like on the mountain and multi-million dollar houses, basically like blank checks. I mean, I'd like call these, um, <laughs> these homeowners and tell them, hey, we need to like expand the backyard to fit this jacuzzi. It's going to cost an extra like 200K. Like, oh, totally cool. Um, <laughs> and, then was, and, then, and then, and we finished the home. And I would learn that the owner actually lived in, you know, Houston. This is one of five homes. And they're really only spending like one or two weeks in Vail a year. They're also not renting out this home because they're like, I don't want anyone else living in my house. Um, so it's sitting there empty. And at the same time, I'm making friends in Vail. Um, a, lot, a lot of them sort of in the lifties and working in the ski shops who cannot afford to live in Vail or even one or two towns over. I and mean, we got people driving from like renting in Leadville and then driving to Vail every day on a dangerous mountain pass um, because they can't afford to work um, and live in Vail. Uh, there isn't a much as enough um, workforce housing. And so it really got me thinking about this like dynamic, uh, basically like these very wealthy sort of elitist resort towns that are depending on the workforce to service them but not allowing them to live there, um, sort of separating that. Um, and it kind of activated me and sort of got me thinking about how housing affordability and land use um, and got, got me involved in uh, sort of the movement to build more affordable housing. Yeah. Um, and that, that's also all wrapped up in climate, right? And, and we could talk about this a little bit with, you think about Boulder as well, where we're, we're adding jobs to a community without adding a proportional amount of housing. And when you're hiring people without housing them, you're pushing them out of the community to live further and further away, which from a climate perspective adds emissions. It adds vehicle miles traveled um, and, and it adds um, transportation pollution to the system. So th there's, there's this sort of transportation and land use are inextricably linked in that way. And if we wanna get at transportation pollution, we've also got to think about housing and the housing jobs balance. Yeah, well, that's definitely the case with the increased emissions with more people traveling. There's no argument against that, I don't think. And we've talked about this topic on the show a fair amount. And I'd, I'd like to get in with it, into it with you as well, because I really, I don't see a clear solution that makes sense for everyone. So I understand the idea that it seems kind of weird that this wealthy person has a 2000 square foot plot of livable space that's only being used two weeks of the year, you think to yourself, hmm, that doesn't make sense. But at the same time, we have this free market economic system that's in place that is valuing assets based on what they're worth and people who have the money to afford them can buy them. So it seems fair and free, but then you get 
um, you know, results like this, where you've got poor people not able to live in the places that they work. I, I don't have a, a simple answer to that. And, and you know, reg regardless of the fact of whether or not that I'm the climate change realtor and I'm all about, you know, positive environmental impacts, I still want a realistic solution that people can actually um, adopt on both sides of the aisle, whether it be politically or economically. And I, I don't know what the answer to this, this issue would be. Does that mean that we, you know, designate certain homes in the city to be affordable? That's what we do in Boulder. Or do we actually change the market so people can't buy space and not use it? That seems kind of like uh, draconian to do that. So I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, it's certainly complex. I, I, I would argue that we do not have a free market when it comes to housing, that we actually over-regulate on zoning and land use. Huh. If you take the example of, you look at most residential uh, districts in Boulder and actually in Colorado, the majority of them are zoned for single family, meaning one dwelling unit per parcel, right? So that means if, if I bought a house in Boulder um, and it, you know just a single family home on a lot and I wanted to put up a wall in the middle and create a duplex, right? And rent out the other half and basically double the density there, um, I that's illegal, right? You, you can't add two units, three, four. I mean, you can't add accessory dwelling units. There, are, Boulder did update that policy a couple of years ago. That it is pretty restrictive. It's not every home. It's only a few on the block, and you've got to have parking and these sorts of things. But we're not allowing the free market to really drive the type of density um, that would improve affordability um, and that would reduce emissions by adding more people into walkable communities where they don't have to drive everywhere. Right. Um, so we are seeing um, some movement in other states. So in Oregon, for example, um, we've got the city of Portland. They actually banned the single family zoning. So now in single family zone districts in Portland, you can build uh, two, three, up to four units um, on that property. And that does really improve density. And I think I think look, I think density is like a, become this like bad word that people are afraid of, especially in Boulder. Like people think we were trying to build skyscrapers in front of the Flatirons. That's like not what we're saying. Um, it, it has to be more nuanced than that. And really what we're talking about is gentle density, right? So allowing up to four units, not forcing it on anyone, but if you do own that land, you know, you can make a decision as a homeowner to build a duplex if you want to, that's fine. And then I think you'd, you'd wanna think about um, specifically neighborhoods around high frequency transit stations. Like if you think about downtown Boulder, you think about Boulder Junction, really like along 28th there. Um, similarly, if you think about, you know, Denver along Broadway or Federal or Colfax, all of those have like 15 minute bus or light rail service. And so within say quarter mile of that transit station, that's really where we wanna be putting people and allowing greater density. And you could put some numbers on that. You could say like, you know, a five story building, maybe 20% of it's affordable housing. And even better if you like give everyone in that building an eco pass and limit the parking supply. And that really allows them, if they want to, to live a more car-free lifestyle, with lower vehicle miles traveled, lower greenhouse gas emissions. But right now I'd say we're over-regulating the housing market. And, and you can see this play out in with low transit ridership, right? We invested all this money in RTD to build out light rail, to build out bus service, but we did not allow um, density around the train stations, around the bus stations. And so ridership remains pretty low. Like you can get off at a, a light rail stop east of Denver. It's in a warehouse district. In a, it's in no man's land, right? So if, if you really were thinking about transportation and land use together, you, you'd plan for that and it would have implications for, for both zoning and, and housing. Do you not just think that ridership is low because riding the bus sucks and people are weird on the bus? <laughs> um uh i'm one of those weirdos on the bus i guess um no i didn't I, mean I, to I, like broadly yeah. like generalize yeah. but like i lived like the bus yeah. life in australia and it was definitely different but like in the u.s yeah. i don't know like i've ridden the bus home from like what's it called grand central station in new york or now port authority 
I mean, when you have a, right. a choice, if you have a car, which is like taking the bus versus driving, like, yes, the environmental impacts are worse when you drive, but it's a more comfortable, luxurious experience. Don't you think people, some people prefer that? I mean, I, of course, some people do, but like, I don't, I don't know how much of a mm-hmm. factor that is compared to like convenience and where you live kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, we're not even giving people the option today, right? right? Like that's assuming that it takes the same amount of time, costs me the same amount of money, feels safe, is convenient to either drive or take the bus. And then you're choosing between equal modes of transportation. That's not true today, right? If, if I want to get across town in Denver, it might take me 15 minutes in a car and an hour and a half on three different buses, right? And it's going to cost me, wow. say, three, four bucks, but six bucks to get over there on a bus when I've already have this sunken cost of a car, I've already paid for it. Right. And so just when I'm making that decision, obviously I'm going to choose a car. And then to add on top of it, not only is it three buses to get across town, but it's unreliable. They may not come on time. Right. I just took a trip across town uh, two days ago and I had to get, basically it was two buses. It was one to the middle of Denver and then one to North Denver. The first bus came four minutes late. I missed the connector bus. I realized I was going to be late for this meeting. So I ended up hopping in an Uber. That Uber cost me $24 and got there late anyway because I was stuck in traffic. So the the system is really broken, right? We're not giving people equal mobility options between different modes, right? We don't have enough bike lanes for people to get across town and feel safe doing so. We don't have enough transit service for for that to be a reliable and convenient and affordable option. So I think we're a long way from that. I mean, certainly people can choose to drive if they want to, but that's like the only choice right now. And yeah. frankly, it, it's the most polluting choice and it's hugely expensive. I mean, it costs uh, the average American $10,000 a year to own a car. I, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, right? I think a lot of people move to Denver or Boulder or other parts of Colorado from places that have good transit, whether that be in the US or overseas. And they move to the city, they say, okay, I don't need a car, I'm living in a city. And then they realize we don't have good transit service. I actually need a car to get around. And that, that frustrates a lot of people. And it also like hurts our wallets. Um, yeah. It's hugely expensive. It's expensive for all of us, but especially if you look at sort of the lower quintile of um, earners, like if you look at the lowest fifth of earners, they're, they're spending like a third of their income just on transportation costs. Wow. And that, that's crazy. And, and they're spending you know, even more than that on housing. There's not, there's nothing left over. Right. Um, and so I think we're putting people in a really tough position. I would argue that transit should really be a public good. I mean, there's so many benefits that come along with it, not only from pollution, but in terms of access to jobs, um, helping people save money on household and transportation costs. And so I think we got to get to a place where get from a place where we're like comparing it to cars to like, it should really be a public good where it's, it's free it's ubiquitous, it's convenient, it's reliable, and people can use it to get around if they want to. That would be pretty awesome. You know what? I take it back. I I lived in Sydney for a whole year and I rode the bus the entire year. And I never once had any negative negative interactions or any like weird people that made me feel uncomfortable in Sydney. It's this America where you get crazy people on the bus. Like I know people yeah. who have like been stabbed on the bus and stuff. Like so that's that's there in this country, which doesn't help with the transition. But yeah, those are just that's just my personal anecdotes. Let's let's get into talking about the Southwest yeah. Energy Efficiency Project. So well, like what exactly what do you do on a day to day basis? Like what is the, the goal of the organization? All that stuff. Sure. Yeah. So we advocate for energy efficiency and clean transportation policy at the state level. So we work on a lot of legislation uh, in in our five states. Uh, I've done a lot of work on which are Colorado, Utah, Nevada, New Mexico, and Arizona. Love it. So pretty good mix there. Uh, We got what three blue, two red states, um, and they're all different. Very, very interesting uh, cross section politically. But we're seeing a lot of opportunity, not only in Colorado, but increasingly so in Nevada, New Mexico, um, and even yeah, in Arizona and Utah as well. Um, so yeah, we work on a lot of legislation. I've done a lot on um, electric vehicles. So working through like, what are the major barriers to buy an electric vehicle? 
you know, we think about the sort of upfront cost of an electric vehicle or EV versus a gas car. We think about the charging infrastructure, making sure it's convenient and affordable for people to charge these things. People make sure they understand as we like sort of shift the paradigm from refueling at a gas station to basically recharging your car at home, plugging it in overnight like a smartphone. Um, and so we've, yeah, we've worked on state policies like the Colorado EV tax credit. We worked um, on XL Energy now, our big electric utility um, in Colorado now has uh, charging, uh, charging incentive programs. So for single family homes, multifamily homes, businesses, they can take advantage of these incentives if they wanna build uh, EV charging stations for themselves, for their employees, for the public. Um, those are just rolling out this year. So that's really exciting. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other thing we worked on, the big thing this year was Senate Bill 260, which basically is gonna raise about five and a half billion dollars for transportation funding. Included in that five and a half billion is about 750 million for transportation electrification. We're gonna use that money to build more charging stations, to replace diesel school buses and transit buses with electric buses. Who's we? Is that the state of Colorado? That's the state, uh, not state. But yeah, that, that's public investment um, in basically transitioning from gasoline and diesel vehicles to electric vehicles. And then when we think about um, sort of our climate targets, so in 2019, Colorado, the, the legislature passed House Bill um, 1261, which sets greenhouse gas reduction goals. And the goal by 2030 is to basically cut greenhouse gas pollution in half. Excellent. So, and that's economy-wide. Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gas pollution in our state. It's about a third of all emissions. And then when we, when we sort of break down transportation and think about how you might cut some of that pollution by 2030, about three quarters of those reductions will come from electric vehicles and more fuel efficient vehicles as we get it to higher like 30, 40 miles per gallon for gas cars. The remaining quarter basically needs to come from reductions in vehicle trips, vehicle travel. So instead of driving, you know, um, 11,000 miles a year, that's the average uh, for Coloradans, I think we need to get closer to 10,000. 9,500 and doing so by either mode shifting. So replacing vehicle trips with transit, biking, walking, but also with better land use. So if, if we can put housing closer to jobs, grocery stores, schools, hospitals, and make that driving commute, you know, 15 miles instead of 20 miles, that sort of gets at the problem too, just reducing those vehicle miles traveled. So these goals are not just for like the state, uh, utility. This is like for the people need to like adopt these policies as well for it to actually work. We need to drive less. I well, yeah. I think it goes back to the mobility options, right? Is right now like the only choice is driving, and that's why in Colorado we have higher VMT or vehicle miles traveled on average than the national average. It's a big we state. Also have, it's a big state. Yeah, we all, we also just don't have good transit service. Like it should be easy to get to all the ski resorts on a bus. Um, we're getting there, but it's it's really not, right? We don't, we don't have good transit. We're also just sprawling like crazy. If you look right now at the Denver metro area, about three quarters of new development is taking place sort of east of Denver in the wildlands, in the Arapahoe, Adams, Douglas County areas. And it's basically just sort of homogenous residential suburbs um, without access to like commercial facilities, like, you know, schools, um, hospitals, I guess there's schools out there, but there aren't really job centers out there. You're basically building residential suburbs and people have to get on the highway and commute instead of, you know, be in Denver and have um, options to get around. I wonder if it's probably most important what like, the middle class majority of people are doing rather than the, like the extenuating circumstances of like the wealthy person who has a house in California, Colorado, and Texas and drives between all three. It's probably these, these, these big, um, what's the word like 
societal changes is not really focused on them. It's focused on the majority of the missions are probably made. I guess like large corporations make a lot of emissions. But when it comes to like the individual level, it's probably the majority of the population that has the biggest impact. So we can get people to kind of all live in the same area. We can bring that down. That's interesting. I'm trying to think about how we could actually meet this emissions target for 2030. Because, you know, it would be nice to have like actual backstops. So we like successfully accomplish it. Um, when it comes sure. to like specific policy around EV, what are you like uh, bullish on like or what are you trying to promote on electric vehicles i think in particular um, we, yeah i think i think we need to bring down the upfront cost um right now evs are you know five to ten thousand dollars more expensive than gas car um now if you look at the total cost of ownership of an electric vehicle it's lower over time right because you're spending less on fuel you're spending less on maintenance um, for example, you're just charging an electric vehicle costs you about 80 cents per gallon equivalent. So instead of spending like 350 a gallon, you're spending 80 cents a gallon and you're saving about a thousand dollars a year versus a gas car. People like that. If you look, if you look, if you, yeah, if you look at maintenance, it, it costs about half what it costs to repair a gas car. You got regenerative braking, so you don't need to replace the brakes very often. You know, no oil changes, no spark plugs, none of that. There's only like 20 parts in an EV. It's a very simple technology. So you're really just paying to like rotate the tires. Um, so there is, there are like economic benefits in ter terms of total cost of ownership, but I think we need to lower that upfront barrier of like actually buying one. Um, we do see that EVs are becoming more cost competitive with gas cars. If you think about just 10 years ago, the cost of a battery um, it was about, I think it was about a thousand dollars per kilowatt hour. So if you think about say a Nissan Leaf or a Chevy Bolt with a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack, that battery pack alone costs like $60,000 10 years ago. Now we're getting that cost to closer to like a hundred dollars per kilowatt hour, like 10% of that cost. So that same battery pack that cost $60,000 10 years ago, costs $6,000 today. Right. And that, that, sort of learning curve just continues, right? Economies so, of scale. It's unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable. It's so awesome. I think we're, we're going to see that continue. And you, you look at sort of um, like McKinsey and a lot of these reports coming from the experts, they're, they're expecting sort of cost parity between EVs and gas cars in the sort of 2024, 2025 timeframe. That's Makes without sense. tax credits. If you throw on the tax credits, right? We've got a $7,500 federal tax credit $2,500 Colorado state tax credit, then it's cheaper on day one and you're just saving money immediately. Um, so I, I think I think the uh, economic argument's certainly there. When you think about other barriers to electric vehicles, people really get freaked out about the range. Um, you know, today you can get an EV with 250, 300 miles of range on it, um, which like, does scare people because they're used to driving a gas car that has four or 500 miles of range and having access to gas stations all over the place. But we are building out more fast charging stations. Um, the, the state actually has a deal with ChargePoint right now. ChargePoint's one of the biggest EV charging providers to build 34 uh, public fast charging stations around the state. And they've opened about half of them. So today, I mean, I, I own a Nissan Leaf um, and I've when I bought it, I was, I was planning trips out to like Crested Butte and realizing that I couldn't really get there because I didn't have enough charging. As of earlier this year, they finally opened fast chargers in Fairplay, Salida, Buena Vista, Crested Butte. So I have options. I mean, I could charge, usually I only need one charge on the way, way there, one charge on the way back. But now those charging, charging stations are open I can basically drive anywhere in the state with my leaf. It's got 230 miles range, you know, pull over for 30 or 40 minutes here and there and top off. But it's a totally different world than it was even a year ago. And I think we'll probably have double the number of chargers by this time next year. So I think this, the state's doing a lot to address that. And we're starting to also see private sector um, money come in and build out those charging stations as more people have EVs and there's a stronger business case. Yo, I'm I'm loving having you on right now. Like, I didn't know it, any of this. What what I am thinking about is like I've got this 2007 Honda Accord that was a gift 
uh, to me. And as much yeah. as I, w- I want to wrap my car and have my face on it so everyone can see climate change realty when I drive around Boulder, but I'm like, oh, it's a gas car that sucks. Um, but <laughs> like the yeah. financial incentive to like not change the car is huge. It's a 2007, but it has like 87,000 miles on it. This car is going to last forever. So I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm wondering is, is what percentage of like the cars on the road are like turning over each year? And then like, what percentage is becoming EVs? And like, is there, should we even want to increase that number? Because there's all this junk and scrap metal and stuff. That's what are we going to do with all that? Uh, yeah, that, 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 that topic. Really good questions. Yeah. <laughs> so there are, I think, 5.3 million cars in Colorado. And we buy about 200,000 every year. So I don't know what that translates to. Maybe it's like 6% or something fleet turnover. Um, meaning it's going to take a long time to transition the whole fleet over to years. electric. Yeah. Um, so, and today I, I think the number is about 6% of new cars are electric, which is really good. I think we're ranked fifth or sixth in the nation as a state in terms of electric vehicle market share, like as a percentage of new sales. So we're doing really well. Most of those EVs are purchased by wealthier individuals. I mean, Tesla is dominating the market. It's like two thirds of EV sales right now. And then you've got these higher end other cars, um, you know, from Audi, um, from BMW, Mercedes, um, that are more expensive. Rivian's now coming out with their uh, electric pickup truck and electric SUV, but that's going to be seventy, eighty thousand dollars. So, I mean, like with any t- new technology, I think it's going to be available to wealthy people before the masses. But we are seeing more like affordable EVs come online. I mean, the Nissan Leaf I think is thirty-one thousand dollars for the long-range one, and again, you get a ten thousand dollar tax credit, which brings that down to twenty-one thousand um, dollars. You can lease it for like I think three hundred twenty dollars a month. Um, which is what I chose to do. And that, that made sense for me. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I hear your story a lot. I'm paying like, zero. Hey, I know. I'm paying insurance. Know. <laughs> uh, you, right. You're paying insurance. I, I mean, I wonder how much you pay to repair the car every year. Because it's a, it's a Honda, that, dude. <laughs> not much. It's a Honda. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what else to say. You change you change the oil. You don't crash into other people. You do pretty well. Yeah, I have the brakes, oh. brake pad. But I'm sure you have to replace brake pads on electric vehicles as well. No, I've spent in in, eight, in eighteen months. I've spent thirty five dollars on maintenance. So I mean, I, I think it's all these hidden costs that you don't necessarily think about that start to make sense. But I mean, you know, you're right. I think a lot of people. I mean, I there's some stats on this, like surveys done by AAA about like a third of people, you know, want their next car to be an EV, but they're not quite ready to go there. And frankly, most people want a used car. They're not going to buy new. And so we need enough new cars in the pipeline and then sort of passing down into the used car market to then make them more affordable. And that's starting to happen. I mean, it's going to happen with time, but I mean, you're really highlighting here, um, why we also need to like couple electrification with like strategies like transit, because we just can't do it fast enough with electric vehicles. We're not going to retire the fleet quickly enough and the turnovers too slow. Like even at the point we get to hundred percent of new cars are electric. It's still going to take that 15, 17 years to fully decarbonize the fleet. Right. So we've got to think about complementary strategies like smart land use, transit investments, bikes, um, walkable cities, all these good things. Well, where, where do you think like companies like Uber and like other ride sharing companies will come into play with, with this kind of thing? It's a good question. Um, and it's really important because Uber and Lyft cars drive about five miles, sorry, five times more than personally owned vehicles. So you and I might put 11, 12,000 miles per year on our cars. An Uber driver might put 60,000 miles on, right? So if you if replacing an Uber car is with an EV is is basically worth replacing like five personally owned vehicles. That's a great um, point. So it's it's really important that we go after Uber and Lyft. Um, and then also, I mean, there's benefits for them too, right? Like if the cost savings is on a per mile basis, right? If they're spending 
sort of five cents a mile in electricity versus 15 cents a mile for gasoline, and you're driving five times further, the cost benefits are even higher. Like they might spend $7,000 a year on gas, but only $1,500 a year on electricity, something like that. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, we have been putting a lot of pressure. I mean, we as an environmental community, putting a lot of pressure on Uber and Lyft because studies have come out showing that they're really increasing traffic and pollution because they're driving around without passengers a lot of the time, right? There's this concept of deadheading where an Uber has to travel to a location to pick someone up, go drop them off, drive to another location to pick someone up. And that's all of those like interstitial trips that add pollution and add miles traveled. And so if you, there's like some good data on this now, they're basically each Uber trip increases pollution by about 70% compared to a personally owned vehicle trip. Right. So, and that's, that's happening in cities around the country. So we, we've sort of taken that data, put some more pressure on Uber and Lyft. They've responded um, by making some pretty good commitments. Lyft wants to electrify their fleet by 2030. So that's, you know, nine years from now. Um, interesting to think about how they might do that since they don't really own many of the vehicles on their service, right? They're contracting that out. So they are thinking about ways to get EVs out of the system. They actually did buy quite a few electric vehicles. I think they bought a fleet of Hyundai Kona EVs in Denver, and they're offering those as rentals to drivers and, um, and building charging stations so they can help, and, and maybe even giving people charging stations at home so they can charge them there. So interesting pilots like that. And then there's an increasing focus on sort of tying Uber and Lyft into transit and figuring out how they might be complementary. Like for example, if I live say two miles from a light rail stop, a little far to walk, but maybe I take an scooter. Uber to the transit stop. <laughs> That'd be great. If I had a scooter, I would. But no, the Lyft yeah, scooters, I, they, ha they have those yeah. in Denver, don't they? Right. Yes. Those yeah, are they electric. are becoming, they're becoming mobility companies, right? Not just cars anymore, but they've got scooters. They've now got electric bikes, like dockless bikes, all these good things. So really like expanding the concept of Uber and Lyft to think about multimodal and how it, it links with transit. Another thing is we have like an RTD, the, the regional transit district in Denver, it's a huge, huge footprint, right? All these cities, counties, suburbs, some of these suburbs don't really have the density to support a bus route, right? They're driving through single family neighborhoods, there's hardly anyone on the bus. So we're starting to think about smaller vehicles like micro transit, you might run a shuttle, but at a certain point, it makes sense to maybe just subsidize an Uber or Lyft trip, especially for lower income communities to give them greater access to the transit service. If we're paying like, I don't know, 40 or $50 per passenger for bus service, you can certainly save money subsidizing an Uber trip in most cases. So I, I think that the future will likely see greater integration between transit agencies and some of these Uber, Lyfts, micro mobility services, um, and, and using that to like really reduce vehicle trips and pollution. I think just generally speaking, the more we work together on anything, we, uh, we do a better job. Speaking of which, shout out Duncan Gilchrist. Matt, you're an awesome guy to have on the show. I appreciate Duncan recommending me speak yeah. to you. Um, curious what your like day-to-day -day workflow looks like on these like different policy projects you're working on at Sweep. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we say yes to a lot. So <laughs> it's everything from working with XL Energy on the design of their electric vehicle charging programs to working with local government, like city of Longmont now setting some pretty bold electric vehicle targets um, to working with state legislators as they think about policies that reduce transportation pollution. Um, doing a lot of work with CDOT now. Um, CDOT's got their 10 year plan of projects, but they're also rolling out um, what they're calling a greenhouse gas planning rule. What is CDOT? Set Sorry, I'm using a lot of acronyms, so please stop me and I'll unpack them. You. But CDOT is the Colorado Department of Transportation. Excellent. So basically responsible for spending about two and a half billion dollars a year on transportation infrastructure. Um, and that's where our sort of gas taxes go, fair amount of money from the general fund. 
about to be a lot of money from the federal government. Um, so CDOT traditionally has spent most of their money on highways and highway expansion. You think about I-70, I-25, I-270. Um, CDOT actually used to be called the, the Colorado Department of Highways. And then in 1991, about 30 years ago, they changed their name to the Colorado Department of Transportation and started to talk about you know, other modes of transportation, not just cars. They didn't really change their policies at that point. It's taken some time, but I think with this new administration, new leadership at CDOT, they're starting to really think critically about how they might support other modes uh, instead of just widening highways. Um, I think also we have a lot of new research now showing that when you add a lane of highway in the name of congestion relief, it actually just generates more traffic and more pollution. And so they really justify these, these highway widening projects by saying, you know, we're gonna get rid of traffic, which is true temporarily. But all the studies suggest that within three to five years, that new lane just fills up with traffic and you're stuck with the same congestion. And so you, it, it creates this reinforcing feedback loop of you, you have traffic, so you build a lane, and then it, it encourages more people to drive more trips, further distances, you have more traffic. Okay, we should add another lane. And that's how you get you know, 24 lane wide freeways like you have in Texas and Houston. And they're still congested, right? And they wanna widen it, of course. And so I think you know, it's a broken system and I'm glad we're starting to think about other solutions, like maybe taking one lane and putting rapid transit in there. Like we have the Flatiron Flyer on US 36. And that really does go a long way to actually reduce congestion. And right now we're not, we're opening up the conversation to talk about land use as well, so that we're not putting everything so far away um, from where you live. Yeah, I had Ian Ian Tafoya on the show, and he was talking about the exact same thing. Um, and awesome. I asked him this question: I wonder if you know, are you familiar with the Boring Company? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, I love that idea: building tunnels and then just having people go through the tunnels instead of having <laughs> like highways and roads. Seems like it would make a lot more sense to me. So you know it at least. You're versed in the stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know if I agree with it. I think it's um I know like Las Vegas is building, like partnering with Tesla now, and they have a boring project. They basically built a tunnel and they're um shuttling Teslas through the tunnel. Um, I mean, I think they're kind of reinventing the subway <laughs> by a different name. Um we figured this out like 120 years ago in New York city. We just haven't adequately funded it and rolled it out in every city. Um, it, it is just much less efficient to be in a single occupancy vehicle in the tunnel versus a train or a bus. Um, and so I, I'm not like super high on boring company. I think no it'd be nice if it brought down the cost of building new transit. You know, if you want to build below grade um, light, light rail or train service. Um, it's super expensive in this country to do that. And it takes a long time. So if boring company could figure out a way to bring down those costs and then partner with transit agencies to get more service out there, that would be great. But I think having it like exclusive to Tesla owners is, isn't a great look. <laughs> and oh, so, really? uh, is that what they're doing in Vegas? My understanding is, yeah, it's, it's Tesla's only Teslas can use the service. And it's basically pedestrians coming down into what well, basically looks like a subway stop. And then they have Teslas there to shuttle you through the tunnel to the other side of the convention center. Uh, just I like mean, Apple, they're making a Tesla only economy. Very interesting. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that, but uh, yeah, I just love to ask. I, I, I like to, you know, look into the high tech crazy ideas. Uh, speaking of which, why, why do you, I had read something. I don't know if it was like you were interviewed or an article that you wrote where you said that you, it's important to advocate like a broad suite of public benefits without being tied to like one solution. I just wanted to kind of ask you your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, at sweep, because we work in um, a very diverse region politically, um, we, we, we do look at all the benefits and you have to talk about it in different ways, frankly. Like in Colorado, we have climate targets, we've got air quality goals, right? We're in a non-attainment area for ozone. 
and that's a serious problem. If you go to Arizona, you can't really talk about climate in the same way. Um, and so and they do have air quality issues, but in, certain, in different venues, we like to talk about different benefits. So when we talk about electric vehicle policy in Colorado, I like to highlight the climate benefits. We talk about the social cost of carbon, right? Like dealing with climate change later is hugely expensive, right? Like billions and billions of dollars. So preventing that pollution now will save us a lot of money as a society and more than justifies really any of these climate policies. But we, you know, we include that in policies, you know, if a certain electric vehicle policy will reduce X tons of carbon pollution, you can apply a, a dollar amount to that, say $50, $75, and come up with an economic benefit for that policy. That's the way we might talk about it in Colorado or Nevada, for example. When we go to Arizona or Utah, I like to shift a little bit to the economic benefits, right? People are paying way too much on gasoline and diesel. We're giving this all to oil companies. In the case of Nevada, they don't have any oil wells or oil refineries in state. So all of that money is leaving the state. Whereas if they switch to electric, you know, they have electric utilities and it will stay within the state, right? Not only will consumers save money switching electricity and fueling their vehicles for, for less, but also what they do pay, pay in electricity will stay in the economy. And we'll, you know, they're gonna have to build more wind and solar, which Nevada has abundant solar and wind resources. And that all generates economic activity in the state of Nevada. So that, that's the way we kind of talk about it, um, different benefits in, in different venues. Awesome, man. I really appreciate what you're doing. Some, it's some cool stuff. Uh, has a lot of broad implications as well. Like you could really have a nice big positive impact if people actually listen and, and make changes that make their lives not only more like and more efficient and better for the climate, but just like, like you said, like have a huge economic benefit. So it seems like it's just a no brainer, but that's of course how you got to phrase it. Um, can you think of any countries that are really great at demonstrating the future of like green, clean transportation, like anything we can like emulate? Yeah. Well, so a lot of people point to Norway on electric vehicles. A lot of Teslas. Yeah, oh. They're all, they're all Tesla yeah. out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, um, I just looked at the latest numbers. They're about 85% EV market share. 85% of new cars are electric. Unbelievable. Um, you know, we're Good trying place. to get there like basically by 2033, I'd say. We're on track right now. Um, so Norway's way ahead of the curve. They've done it with incentives. Um, but the other piece of that is like just the supply. Like we need better global supply of electric vehicles. They've had incentives in place for 10 years, but only recently has the market really taken off as the Tesla Model 3 came online, as the new Volkswagen ID4, all these like new EVs that really like, you know, fit, um, fit the market. Um, so, I, you know, when I think about EVs, I, you know, I think about Norway. Um, I also like, you gotta give kudos to California. Um, I mean, like, Adopting a California policy does freak a lot of other states out, but they've really led the world on climate policy. And it's the California Air Resources Board or CARB. Um, you know, they, they uh, basically from the Clean Air Act started to roll out all of these policies, sector specific policies to cut pollution. So on the transportation side, they've got this really important policy called the Zero Emission Vehicle Standard or the ZEV Standard which requires car companies to basically sell EVs in their state. And um, I think it's about 10 years old. Um, and it's really the only reason we have EVs in this country is that one policy. Um, now 15 other states have adopted that policy. And when China went to think about electric vehicles and what policies might encourage adoption, they looked at the California ZEV standard and adopted something very similar as did the EU. So I, I think there's a lot of really great climate policy thinking that's originated in California. I would also say that Colorado's starting to catch up with California um, on some of these things. We don't have cap and trade or anything, but in transportation, we've now adopted low emission vehicle standard, zero emission vehicle standard. We're now looking at diesel trucks and electric trucks. But I think we're starting to like sort of make a name for ourselves as a state when it comes to climate policy, particularly with this, this CDOT rule. It's really like one of the sort of leading 
transportation planning policies um, in the country. So I'm excited to see where that goes. And I think a lot of other states are, are watching and learning from each other and sort of using state policy as like a laboratory um, to then elevate to the national level. I love that. That's awesome. Making me, yeah, you're making me want to talk to some more people from California. I mean, I've, I've spent very little time there. I really don't know too much about the the state at all. Uh, it'd definitely be interesting to talk to some people doing some, some cool stuff out there, but man, that's a big, big wild house out there. It's like, you know, one of the biggest economies in the world, lots of people, crazy stuff. I mean, they led the world on cannabis as well. They legalized cannabis in 1996, I think for medical use at least. So yeah, they're, they're, they're trailblazing, but happy to be in Colorado as well. Uh, same kind Mm -hmm. of stuff, Matt, it's, it's been a real pleasure, man. I I really appreciate what you're doing and where your head's at and the the happy, positive attitude doesn't hurt at all as well. My, uh, my last question is uh, any advice you have for young people who are passionate about working at places that can make an impact? Oh man. I, yeah, I get this question all the time. Um, yeah, there are so many smart people out there that want to work on climate. And I wish we had like a, like a drop state job recruiter service to get people plugged into climate related work. Um, Cause there's so many avenues, right? It's just like, we need to cut pollution out of the whole economy, like buildings, transportation, industry, agriculture, all of it. It really touches everything. Um, and so I, you know, you've set up a practice that's like, real estate, but focused on climate. I really think it touches so many things. Um, and I yeah, really encourage people to get into it. I, I think there's going to be more and more opportunity, particularly as the federal government rolls out some of these climate investments. And if they're going to spend $3.5 trillion of this budget reconciliation package, and, and a big chunk of that is climate programs, that's going to sort of stimulate a lot of climate jobs. Um, and it's, it's everything, right? We've got millions of buildings in this country that we need to retrofit with en- energy efficient technology. And we got, we got to build electric vehicles. There's just so much innovation that needs to happen at every level. Um, I don't know if I have like great advice, but I would just like encourage people to kind of stick on that path and keep looking. And if you want to call me and talk about it, I'm here. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I sort of like found my way the circuitous path. I never thought I ended up what I'm doing, what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, if, if you like push hard enough and um, talk to enough people, you know, opportunities appear. Yeah, same, same to me. I'm happy to help anyone who's looking to kind of find their way. And uh, yeah, we'll leave your we'll leave your contact information in the description. Matt, like, thanks so much for coming on, man. It meant the world to me. Great, great to hear about what you're doing. I hope we can all continue to collaborate and push some positive change uh, forward. Right on. Thanks for doing this, Ethan. My pleasure. All right, everybody. And of course, we will see you next week. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.